Hello and welcome to Brains and Bellies, where we work to inspire and support you to embrace your healthiest and happiest self. We fuse together ancient Ayurvedic practices with modern nutritional therapy techniques that will help to restore the body and mind. Using food as medicine as our mantra, we explore how the body and mind are connected and how the brain and belly inform one another on all matters of health, be it physical or spiritual. Beth English Myers is a nutritional therapist practicing in London, England, and Carrie Jenkins is an Ayurvedic health counselor and yoga teacher practicing in New York City. You can find us on Instagram at Brains and Bellies Health or visit our website at brainsandbellies.com. Hello, everyone, and Beth and I are very excited today to join Eddie Stern. Uh, we're talking to Eddie today. We're, we're super thrilled to have him here with us. And for those of you who don't know Eddie, Eddie is a yogi, a yoga teacher, uh, a writer. He's a husband and a father. He is a musician, an artist, a philanthropist, a mentor, a healer, a guru, and an all-around great person. He's created a numerous yoga studios in New York City beginning in 1995, and those places have also doubled as gathering places for people who are interested in exploring yoga and exploring breath work or even exploring the inner workings of the mind. Eddie created the Broom Street Temple, which is a Hindu sanctuary in downtown Manhattan. He has written numerous books, most recently One Simple Thing, where he explores the uses of yoga and how breath can be used in a simple way to affect us physically and mentally. He's also created Namrupa Magazine, where he explores and records, illustrates honors, and comments on many systems of knowledge that have originated in India. He also created the Breathing app, which is an app that helps people use breath as a tool for affecting the heart. And he created the Yoga and Science Conference, which I've had the pleasure of being in person at that event a couple times. He's inviting scientists from around the world to come and talk about some of the findings from some of their studies they're doing on yoga and on, I believe, breath work and lots of other disciplines that are connected to yoga. So I know Eddie as a friend, as a teacher, and as a boss, I did teach for him at his Broom Street studio in Soho, New York, on and off for about 10 years. I've also studied with Eddie beginning in 2000 until recently, right before the pandemic hit. And he's taught me a great deal about yoga, about breath, about judgment, and about honesty. So it's a real pleasure to have him with us today. Eddie, Beth, and I want to give you a warm welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that overly kind introduction. Well, I don't feel like it was overly kind. I tried to be as honest as I could, but I have to say after reading it and then actually just speaking it right now, you've been really busy. <laughs> uh, I have. Yeah, it's true. Yes. That's like more than most people do in their entire life. And you're only partway through it here. So yeah, not good. Eddie, we're so happy to have you here. And I'm in England. I live in London, but I'm originally 
originally from New York, and we've got so much you want to talk to you about. I'm coming from the nutrition angle, and in keeping with your wonderful book, One Simple Thing, I'm going to start with one very simple question for you. Could I ask you, it's probably around two o'clock in New York right now, what did you have for lunch or what did you have for breakfast? Okay, so for lunch, I had quinoa with a red bean soup that my wife made. And I put a little bit of kimchi, actually some sauerkraut and a couple slices of avocado on top of it. And I had two bowls of that. And then a little while later, I had half an apple for my dessert. And I'm having a cup of tea. And I don't normally eat breakfast, but today I'm not teaching. So then of course, I get hungry around 8.30 or 9 when I'm not teaching. So I had two rice cakes with peanut butter and honey on them. Okay, that sounds so virtuous and so perfect. I love that. So Eddie, I'm going to ask you to tell us a secret. Any coffee, any sugar, any anything else that you've added to your that wonderful meal? Yes, I normally have. So here's, here's my day. A normal day is I get up early, usually around 3.30. And I drink one or two glasses of water and then I make some coffee. And I have an Italian espresso maker, so I make espresso. And up until the end of the year, right at New Year's, normally that would be like a cappuccino. I'd boil some milk and put some sugar in it, and that's what I'd have. But leading up to the end of the year, like after I fin- I'm in school right now, so after I finish my exams around the 19th of December, then I had to get working to open our temple. And I just like hit it full on. And I was in there like 12 or 14 hours a day, painting the floors, sanding the floors, doing repair work. And I was just pushing it too hard. And I was eating not well. I was having like three or four cappuccinos a day. And the coffee shop where I go, they have chocolate croissants that are really good that don't have any egg on top of them because I don't eat eggs. So I was eating like one of those a day. And, you know, since it was Christmas time, we had cookies around the house and I was just going through cookies. And I was just like filling myself with all the stress foods that you need to keep you going when you have to be working a lot. What happened was right around 29th or so, I started breaking down. Like I'd been pushing too hard for too long and I was eating food that wasn't good and I got strep throat. And then the next thing that happened after that was I got COVID. So from January 1st until like January 3rd was really not very good at all. Like, you know, super burning in the lungs, super burning in the throat. Tons of sweating all through the night, all through the day. Not fun at all. And so all I was having was basically like some vegetable broth or miso broth. Then when I started eating again after about four or five days, then just like some baked vegetables and stuff like that. And so since then, I've been like, okay, I'm going back to super clean. So I haven't been I haven't been having any milk in my coffee. I've gone back to basically almost vegan diet again, which I was for a while, but then I stopped. I've just been super, super clean and feeling much better to tell you the truth. And one of the things that was that I was just talking to Jocelyn about today, Jocelyn's my wife, who said um, that I don't want to, you know, it's like, I don't think it's bad to have a chocolate croissant or to eat a few cookies or whatever. But what I don't want to start doing again is using those foods to mask my energy levels so that I can go back to overdoing it again. And so I'm just being really careful with my food because I'm watching it as an outside indicator of my stress levels and my energy levels. Because number one, I don't want this to turn into like long haul COVID because I'm jumping back into things. And also I want to take the learnings that I had from being so sick to say like, what are the indicators 
that I can look for externally that are going to be a measure of what's happening to me internally. And obviously, like going towards tons of junky foods, even if they're vegan junk foods or vegetarian junk foods, are still an indicator that people need to listen to. And so I was ignoring all those signals just because I wanted to get stuff done. And what ended up happening? I ended up losing 10 days because I was trying to double pack the first 10 days with with as much work as I could. Oh, so- yeah. Everything you're saying. I think all of us can relate to what you're saying. I And thank you so much for sharing that. 100%. We all get that busy. And just hearing you speak about it, we get out of balance. We zig and we zag. The pendulum goes one way. We've got to bring it the other way. And I think one thing, again, that I loved, I love how you're very accepting. It's like, you know, things do fall apart. Uh, we need to take a break sometimes. Sometimes we do have to have that chocolate. But it's that indication, it's that message, if we can listen to it. And I know Carrie and I talk about this all the time, removing that judgment and just, okay, this is what's going on. As you say, it could be masking that, trying to get too many things done. So I love that awareness and that I think we talk about it in terms of trying to get back to that intention, getting that routine, but also being very gentle with ourselves. Yeah, there's having like one or two cookies and eating a whole box of cookies. But also, Eddie, it's really interesting that you're looking at it from kind of the outward perspective. Oh, suddenly I'm eating all these cookies. Wait, hold on a second. I find myself doing things like that. For instance, in the fall, right before COVID got bad again, October, I got to go to Paris, which I hadn't been for two years since, you know, this whole thing started, which was so exciting. And when I arrived, it's like, oh my God, the coffee, the espresso, it was all exciting. And I just let myself have fun. And it was great. But the thing is, it snowballed into this, oh, this is so fun. And when I came back, I found myself literally drinking three or four coffees a day. And I usually don't even drink coffee. (laughs) So then I was like, oh, but I'm trying to like, hold on to that feeling of fun, that feeling of, you know, freedom and, and enjoying myself. And it really spiraled down. I didn't end up with COVID or strep throat, but I really didn't feel well. Um, it took a few weeks and it was, I had to turn it, turn it back around again. So well said. Yes. And then I think like I said, I don't have tattoos, but if I did, one would be blood sugar balance and sleep and breathing. So just remembering to do those simple things. And Mm. lunch, Eddie described, um, I'm dreaming about that lunch. So the quinoa, kimchi, uh, you said avocado as well, right? Just a few slices. Yeah, not too much. Oh, heaven. Yes, that's such a blood sugar balancing lunch. I love that. Sounds great. Sounds a lot better than what I had. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to share, but. (laughs) Yeah, but I, you know, I'm, I'm super lucky because Jocelyn does all the cooking in the house, you know, and like, so if she's not here, what am I going to make? I'll probably throw some vegetables in a pot of boiling water and turn it into a miso soup with whatever vegetables are there, or I'll do vegetable stir fry and and that's it. But it's not going to be super balanced like the food she makes me so i'm lucky i get to eat or cook just about every day i'm not virtuous she's the virtuous one color we said right on that's amazing shout out jocelyn is like an alchemist she knows exactly what to put together to create health really true so eddie can we talk a little bit about how you started with yoga sure we can what do you want to know did you start with yoga because you were looking for yoga or looking for a guru or, or how did you find yourself there so, oh yeah, I wanted to say if I can make an addendum to your your very kind introduction, if there's one thing I'm not, it's a guru. So I think that the, the guru tradition is very much part of the Hindu cultural tradition, you know, unless you're raised in, in an ashram or raised in a tradition where a Westerner can 
become a guru. I don't think that any of us are. I think that the, and I've spoken about this before, the, the framework that I think, which is good for Westerners who are doing yoga and engaged in this is just spiritual friendship. Uh, even in India, it's hard to be a guru, but for the Westerners and even gurus who come to America, things go terribly wrong, which we've seen again and again and again. I was not looking for a guru, really. I didn't even know what yoga was when I started my spiritual search, but I was looking for meaning and I was looking for purpose. I graduated from high school. I wasn't interested in going to university because it didn't, I didn't understand what for, you know, I applied to school of visual arts and I got in and I went to three classes and I was like, I'm done with the classroom. This has absolutely no meaning to me. And I wanted to find meaning. Then when I started experimenting more with psychedelics and mushrooms and LSD and ecstasy and things like that, the little corners of my consciousness started opening up to expanded possibilities and potential and seeing the world in a different way. And that really spurred on what was a spiritual quest. I just didn't have the language for it at that time because I hadn't grown up with it. And then I met a guy named Ted Bioric, who was working in the record store that I was working in, Bleaker Bob's, and he had done yoga in the 19th 70s with Amrit Desai, who started Kripalu Yoga a decade or so later. So, you know, Ted and I would have these long conversations about enlightenment and spirituality and, you know, the meaning of being alive and things like that. And he said, well, you know, if you want to do yoga or go on that path, the first thing you need to do is become a vegetarian. And so my first step as a yoga practitioner was to become a vegetarian. And I was living off of pizza and McDonald's and cappuccino from the Cafe Reggio and Ben's Pizza and two packs of cigarettes a day. And that was my diet. Wow. And, you know, pictures of beer and tequila and all the drugs you could consume. And then I was like, okay, well, your alternative sounds a lot better. So then I just remember the day I became vegetarian. I didn't know what the hell to eat. So I went to the Korean deli and I bought some rice cakes and some iceberg lettuce and some, some apples. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to start here. And so for like a while, that's basically all I ate was like heads of iceberg lettuce and apple butter on rice cakes and apples and stuff like that. And then I bought the Macrobiotic Way by Michio Kushi. I went to East West Books and I started following the macrobiotic diet. There was one or two health food stores in the village. One was called Sunrise on Houston Street. And so I went there with my list of stuff from Michio Kuchi and I bought it. I couldn't believe how frigging expensive it was. So I was like, <laughs> this is a lot more than a piece of pizza. <laughs> and, um, you know, like learning how to cook. And in his book, he had these six exercises for balancing your meridians and they were essentially yoga poses. So I started doing those. And that was really the first yoga that I did. It was all in context of vegetarianism. And then I did some uh, meditation that Ted showed me. And then I started reading books. And maybe six months later or something like that, I walked into my first yoga class to do some yoga poses. So everything was really framed like yoga is about liberation, spiritual liberation and um, enlightenment. And uh, that's what I thought I was trying to do. That was meaning, you know, it's like, oh, here's meaning, you know, this is purpose. Did you feel like, I mean, obviously, as a, as a young, healthy boy eating iceberg lettuce, rice cakes and apples, you could probably exist on that for quite a while before you start feeling bad, right? Unlike a 50-year-old self. Totally. Um, but I'm sure that doing the yoga was probably kind of counterbalancing the lack of energy you were getting from your food and then increasing your energy from the yoga and breathing and meditation. Would you agree no, with that? I didn't, I didn't notice that really at all. Mm -hmm. um, because the yoga poses themselves, 
I just thought I was supposed to do them, you know, but they didn't really do much for me. I mean, I was 20, 21 and or younger, 19, and my body was fairly supple uh, anyway. And so what I liked was chanting and I liked meditating. And I did the yoga poses just because I thought you were like supposed to do them. But honestly, I'm like slightly lazy by nature. I'd rather just sit around and read books and think about enlightenment rather than stand in my head, which is odd because I ended up doing Ashtanga yoga for so many years. <laughs> yeah. But when you're younger, you can do all that stuff and experiment and you can try being a raw foodist and you can try being, you know, going on a being a fruitarian and read Gabriel Cousins and do the rainbow diet and you know, and not much harm is going to come to you because at a certain point you're like, oh, I'm going to do something else now. And then you do it and then things change. But I honestly, like 100% honesty, the asanas were not super compelling for me, but I mainly went to yoga classes because I, I wanted to be around people who were doing something that seemed like it was spiritual. And because I wasn't hanging out in bars anymore and I wasn't doing drugs anymore and I wasn't eating, you know, lousy food anymore, I had no more friends. I lost all of my, (laughs) all of a sudden I was like, like everyone goes through who gets on a spiritual path. I was waking up at five in the morning instead of coming home at five or six in the morning from the clubs. So all my friends who I had at the clubs, I was no longer seeing them and I like people. So, okay, well, here are some people, uh, you know, in the yoga classes, they're all super freaks, you know, they were worse than the people in the nightclubs. But, um, but it was a reason to be around different group of people who were going to encourage my new behavior set. So that's all. And, uh, and I thought, actually, when I started doing Ashtanga yoga, I thought, oh, you know, this is a yoga system that seems to make a lot more sense, because it's very compact and focused. So I felt like I was connecting to a new way of doing asanas that were a lot more impactful than the Shivananda, Kundalini, Jiva Mukti things that I'd been doing, which I love. But all of a sudden, here were some asanas that were like, oh, this is having a strong effect on my, you know, on my nervous system. Yeah. That's well said. And, and I understand that because I think I, I had a similar experience with Ashtanga, with finding Ashtanga. It somehow turned something on in me that hadn't been turned on through the other styles of, of asana practice that I'd done. So you're describing kind of how you came to yoga and developing your kind of patterns and, and lifestyles that were healthier than what you had going on before. What's your advice for people that either have not started this, but are interested, or maybe at the very beginning of of something like yoga or meditation, what do you give them as advice in terms of how to start? What's the best healthy pattern or or lifestyle thing to start with? And how long will it take for them to develop that into an actual pattern that is like brushing their teeth that they don't have to think about so much? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that the way that I used to do it was I used to just go into a bookstore and pull books off of the shelf. Uh, And if one of the books spoke to me, then I would buy it and take it home and read it and dive into it. And that's how I learned about a lot of different things in regards to yoga and spirituality. I would go to different yoga classes in New York. There weren't a lot of them, but I went to all of the ones that I knew about, which was Dharma Mitra, Shivananda, Integral Yoga, Jiva Mukti. Those are the ones that I knew about. So I went to all of them. And, you know, you get pulled towards particular practices. You're like, oh, I like that. Or, oh, I don't like that. I'm not going back there. So I think one of the best things to do is just start trying things. You know, you don't have to look for one teacher or one method or one anything. 
just get out there and, and explore and see what resonates. And, and eventually you'll find something that really resonates and then stick with that for, for as long as you want to and see where it takes you um, and stick with it even when it's difficult or boring or whatever. And at a certain point, you'll know if it's not for you anymore. And then you go on to your next learning experience. So uh, my, my suggestion is try things, see what you like, and then do them for a long time. And when will it become a habit like brushing your teeth? Well, some days you don't even feel like brushing your teeth. Some days it's like you've had a really long day at the end of the day and you're like too tired to even go in the bathroom and brush your teeth again. You know, so sometimes you have to make yourself do that. Sometimes you just don't. You just go to sleep anyway. So I'd say even the simplest of habits, sometimes we don't feel like doing them either. And that's absolutely fine. Good point. Yes, that's true. Um, let's say that everything you're describing is so appealing, just the physiological aspect of bringing it back to gut brain connection, reducing inflammation. Sounds like once you got on that path, even though it was iceberg lettuce and apple butter, you started to feel better. And the chanting and the breathing that's simulating our vagus nerve. So we're going to start feeling differently. So just to keep that going, I mean, would you recommend that that we do like five minutes when we wake up in the morning or a minute? What, like what would be a nice practical takeaway for us? All right. So say you have someone you're, you're saying, I have someone for you who yes. is living a super inflammatory lifestyle. Yeah. They need to downregulate sympathetic nervous system. What should they do? Well, I'd say that number one, it's easier to add something good than it is to take something bad away. So to add in one healthy habit each day and do it super disciplined, no matter what, maybe it's drinking four glasses of water a day or whatever is the thing that they're not doing. That's a great one. And then adding in whatever they think is a manageable amount of one simple practice, say they want to do resonance or coherence breathing. And they say, I can do three minutes a day, like no problem. Five minutes is pushing it for me. Then, okay, so here's your sadhana for the first month, four glasses of water a day, three minutes of resonance breathing minimum once a day, do that. And then, you know, and if you can do that, then we'll add something else in like after a month or so. I mean, remember like when I started this thing in 1986 or 87, whichever it was, it was 86. What did I do? The only thing I did was like change my diet. Like I wasn't going to a yoga class every day. I wasn't going on yoga retreats. I wasn't meditating for an hour. I was eating a head of iceberg lettuce and feeling virtuous. And that was it. You were changing your microbiome. You were changing, you know, they, you know, you were, you were affecting the bacteria in your gut. Yeah. And you were starving by not having the other uh, processed foods you, you described earlier. Yeah, for sure. Like all of that was happening, but, but I was not aware of it. The main thing I was doing, I was excited about doing something that was going to elevate my consciousness. Mm. And so like, that's the really important thing. You're going to do something with regularity if you're excited about it. If you wake oh. up every day and you, you're like, I'm really looking forward to this new habit you're going to do it. And if people are given too much, it becomes burdensome. You know, this is why I think yoga retreats and meditation retreats are great. But one of the reasons I don't teach them is that my experience has been that people go on retreats, they're inundated with a tremendous amount of information, they can practice all day, and they go home, and they don't have any way of integrating it. And then things are great for like a week or two, but then little by little, it fades out, and then they're not really doing a sustained practice. So I, I think sustainable practices are important and the ones that are sustainable 
are the ones that we're really excited about. And then we make time for the things that we love. You have your favorite TV show, you know, you want to binge watch uh, the new season of Ozark, then you're definitely going to make time for it. So, you know, you have to have that same amount of enthusiasm for five minutes of breathing a day or for eating an apple every day, and then you're going to do it. So I think excitement is more important than the actual technique community as well. So do you started to meet new friends. If you have a teacher, someone to, uh, that you can go to with questions and we need that as well. Yeah. And I wonder Eddie, for you, how this all played out. I should speak for myself, but Beth and I talk about this a lot with what we do. Sometimes as the person giving the information, we get really excited when someone comes to us and wants, wants help. Oh, you know, I don't feel well, I want help. And we give them a, a list of 20 things they can do in one day. And then suddenly two weeks later, they say, I haven't done anything. And it gets frustrating for the teacher or practitioner working with someone because you think, well, why? It's taken both of us a while to understand like less is more. For any of you who have been feeling tired or have lost your ability to focus perhaps, have gained weight, or just generally are feeling not so great these days, Beth and I at Brains and Bellies are offering a group three-week cleanse starting March 3rd until March 23rd. We'd love for you to join us. We are offering a full scope of support, including bi-weekly classes, education, access to recorded classes, including breathing, meditation, yoga, and Beth's wonderful talks on liver support and blood sugar balance. We're also offering recipes, shopping lists, kitchen setup ideas, and professional guidance. So please reach out if you'd like to join the cleanse. We're offering a discount if you register by February 18th, 2022, and we do have limited availability. So you can read more about it on our website at brainsandbellies.com or reach out directly to one of us. And let's go back to the show. How do you feel in terms of what you do and the advice that you give people who are also looking to better themselves in whatever way it is, physically, mentally? Is there some kind of formula you have? Can you speak about that? I don't have any particular formula. I mean, you know, I'm a yoga teacher. That's pretty much it. And if someone comes back, that's a pretty good sign. If they don't come back, it's probably not necessarily because... I gave too little or or too much. It's just that I wasn't the right person for them on their path or journey or whatever you want to call it, or to address their needs, which would be a better way of putting it maybe. I want to say one other thing if I can about Ashtanga yoga and food. Like I noticed at a certain point with Ashtanga yoga that I was eating in, this is like 1993, four, five, six, you know, the practice was so demanding and I was pushing myself so hard that I started eating a lot of inflammatory foods again, foods that were inflammatory for me, like a lot of things in say the orange and red and yellow color spectrum, which for a person who's leans towards pitta, that's not a great thing, right? And I was doing it because I was depleting myself. I was burning too much fire and I was adding more fire in there. And sometimes I'd eat like practically whole jars of peanut butter just because I needed, I was sweating off so much protein. So even within a practice, which was good, like I was seriously overdoing it. And then what I did was I bought Andrea Morningstar's book on Ayurvedic cooking and started following her 
suggestions on Ayurvedic diet. And I switched over to a totally different color spectrum of eating. And I started feeling a lot better. My digestion got a lot better. And, and I also had to really struggle to limit the amount of output I was doing in my asana practice. Um, but I didn't do that very well. The dynamism of the practice was making me competitive and making me grasping for attention or to be the best and all that kind of stuff. And other yogas didn't do that to me, but mm. that really happening to me from doing such an intense practice. I might have had it in me already and it just brought it out, but it was getting exacerbated through yeah. the mechanism of the practice. I can relate to that a lot. And actually it reminds me of, of practicing at your studio. And, you know, I'd been in India. I did okay in India. For sure, I had a similar experience. I have a pitta nature and suddenly it's like I, I couldn't keep any weight on and no food was digesting at a certain point in India. And now looking back, I understand I was way too heated. My whole system was heated. I mean, my mind, my body, the whole thing. But I remember talking to an acquaintance that I had at the studio and he said, well, I love Ashtanga, but I can't practice it anymore. I have too much Pitta. I'm too hot. And I thought, well, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense. And now I have a much better understanding of pitta, of one of the three doshas in Ayurveda, and how we can actually affect these doshas by our daily activities. I think it's interesting. I don't know if this is something that you think about, but I remember the years in India, I never got any, unless I went and seeked out an Ayurvedic person that would kind of help get my digestion back in order. My yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce or Sharat, neither of them were telling me, oh, you should eat this and not that. You're practicing too intensely. You need to pull it back a little bit. Like I learn as I grow, as, as you do. And as a teacher now, do you find that you would get a little bit more involved with a student if you saw that than you did in the past? Or do you feel like you've always had a good kind of grasp on, on how to affect students that you see are kind of moving in the wrong direction? Well, you see, for a long time, I thought that I was supposed to emulate everything that I saw occurring in Mysore. So, I mean, you know, you were in my classes. I was strict and I was mean and um, probably not. No, not mean. Strict, but not mean. And um, and I don't think I was as compassionate as I could have been. And uh, Jocelyn says that people were scared of me, you know. So, and that's what I thought I was supposed to be. I've, in the past couple of years, really moved away from wanting to be that kind of person and wanting to be that kind of a teacher. Probably, probably I'd say over the past six years or so. But since the pandemic, you see two months before the pandemic in January of 2020, I made a decision to stop teaching my sore classes. I thought, I don't want to be doing this anymore. There was too much harm that had been caused by Patabi Joyce and all the sexual abuse occurrences committed by him towards many women. There was too much betrayal, I felt, from um, Sharat and different people within the community. And I thought the emphasis on adjustments and pushing people into things all the time was, over long periods of time, not a beneficial way of teaching people. And I didn't want to be in that anymore. I felt ashamed that I hadn't been a stronger person when there were things that I knew about that had happened to women that I didn't stand up for, that I didn't respond to when I was confided in, which happened a couple of times, uh, that I, I had too much fear in me to, to say anything and, and to try to 
be on their side, sort of speak up to the Tommy Joyce or anything. I didn't have I didn't have it. I had too much fear. And so I, I felt sorry and ashamed of that lack of courage that I had in me for that. And so we all have things, you know, and we need to learn from them. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be that kind of a, a person anymore. And so the the natural step to me was that I'll no longer teach in a way that has caused harm to people. I'm not going to participate in the yoga world like that anymore. Um, then the pandemic came. Then I was just teaching online. And I was like, oh, this is great. I don't have to give people adjustments anymore. You know, I don't have to let people think that I'm responsible for their yoga practice. I don't have to keep instilling in people this idea that um, they need to grab their ankles in a back bend and I'm going to put their hands on. I don't need to feel that I have, that I'm the one who's helping someone to go really deep into something deeper than another person has put them there. And teachers, you know, name every teacher wants to be able to put someone into something that no one else could help them in, put them in something that they couldn't do. No, that's not yoga, you know? Uh, and I'd already been saying, you know, in interviews and things like that, that there were different ways of helping people previous to the pandemic. You can use verbal cues. You can demonstrate you can also physically help someone if the need be. But our motor pathways don't open up unless we apply our own effort to get something done. So some, even if someone is helping us with something, if they always help us, we never open the motor pathways that allow us to have the independence and the sovereignty to do that. And that's really what we should be developing if we want a long lasting practice to open up our own pathways. So if you help someone once or twice or three or four times, fine. But if you have to do it every single day for the rest of their lives, you know, as long as they're coming to, there's something wrong with that model. Are you a yoga teacher or are you just a glorified masseuse? You know, you're just a body worker at that point. But what actually yoga is about, not only independence, but recognizing your own independence as free from, you know, the bondage to the change of material nature that I am spirit, I am consciousness, I am something transcendent of all the change that I see around me. Uh, and if we're emphasizing all the time, that will incorrect method, incorrect method. No, it's only like this then that's fine, you know, for some discipline for a while, but it's not fine for a life philosophy because then everything else is wrong and you're the only one who's right. And now before you know it, you're a, a fanatic and an authoritarian. <laughs> that's what we have in, you know, many sectors of society. So I got to be like everybody else in the situation of just giving verbal cues and I really, really love it. And I continue to love it now. So we opened up last week again at the temple. So I no longer have a yoga school. Um, I no longer teach this Mysore style of yoga. I still teach Ashtanga yoga, the, the guided classes, two days a week, not every day of the week. I'm only teaching four days a week right now. And two days of those weeks, on Wednesday and Friday, we're doing something called a self-paced class. And in the self-paced class, um, people can do their Ashtanga yoga practice if they want. Or if they need to learn something else, then I'll try to teach them something else based on what I know and what I'm currently practicing myself. And maybe they just need to do some pranayamas. Maybe they need to lie on their back for 45 minutes. Maybe they need to do some back strengthening things. Maybe they need to do primary series, you know. So it's now a smaller group of people because we're limiting the class sizes, of course. And it's much more free form. It's like, okay, Here's a place to practice and we'll do what you need to do. If you're doing Ashtanga yoga, if you need some help, I can give you some help. I'm not going to give you tons of help. I'm not going to do your practice for you. And, and that's the story there. And then one day a week, 
Uh, I teach a one hour Ashtanga class, which is just the postures with only a few jump backs. One day a week, I teach a practice based on what I'm currently practicing. Two or three days a week, we have pranayama classes. And then I do a couple of lead primary classes or half intermediates a week as well. I am currently not really practicing Ashtanga yoga. I did it for 30 years or so, um, 1991 to 2021, so 30 years. And in the past year, I've decided that it's not that I decided, but I felt like it wasn't really making me feel good anymore. Like I wanted to feel vitality when I was done. I wanted to feel like just a sense of well-being when I was done with my yoga. And I wasn't feeling that anymore. I was starting to feel tired from doing it. That to me was an indication that like now I'm going into my 55th year, I'm 54. So what I want to do now is I want to maintain stability. I want to keep my strength. I want to keep my body in shape so that as I get older, like it continues to function. You know, I don't want to wear it down. And I felt like I was starting to wear myself down a little. So, you know, it's good to do something for a long time, but at a certain point, maybe your body will tell you or your mind will tell you or your heart will tell you, okay, you learned this thing already. And now you can learn something else um, that's also going to be beneficial for you and maybe for other people one day too. And one of the things that Ashtanga Yoga has not provided us is any other options for what happens when you get old or when you get injured, when you get tired or when life overwhelms you. It's always been practice, practice, practice. And no matter what's going on, practice anyway, you know, and keep pushing yourself. Even when you get old, you should be pushing yourself and doing the hardest things possible. For some people, that's okay. But historically, for most people that I've observed over 30 years, it hasn't been. And at a certain point, they they stop practicing or they stop coming to Mysore. Or they go off to find something else. And then people criticize them behind their backs for changing the method. Or, <laughs> we shouldn't be doing that. We should be going, okay, look, yeah, now you're getting into a different stage and here's the next thing for you to do. And it's really awesome that you made it this far. And now you don't have to beat the shit out of yourself every day if that's what you're doing. You know, if you're forcing yourself to still try to maintain what you could do when you're 20 or 30, if you're forcing yourself and there's a strain, guess what? It's time to soften. It's time to change. It's time to be a little bit more interior. Here are the things that you can do. You know, why not be able to provide that for people? It, it would be good rather than the alternative. So that's that. Well, I'm curious, you know, I haven't talked to a lot of longtime Ashtanga practitioners during these last two years, for sure. But I am curious to know how many people, because of the pandemic, were put on pause and actually came to some of these realizations. Uh, It definitely has affected me in that way with my practice and also just the study of, of Ayurveda and understanding that each of us are different and every day we are possibly different and maybe need different things. Thank you for sharing that, Eddie, because I think that is, first of all, congratulations. I'm, I'm so excited to come to one of your classes. And also, it's really interesting to hear your kind of thought process and all the changes that have happened in your 30, how many years, 31 years of practicing? Yeah, yeah 1987 or so until now. So 35 years. 35. But I also wanted to just ask if you would share a little bit about what the Broom Street Temple is about. And can you talk a little bit about the Ganesh and anything else that you have there? And, and are people welcome to come? And how, how does that work? And how does that look? And why should we come? <laughs> uh, you should come because you feel like visiting and saying hi. And uh, the Broom Street Temple is a Hindu temple in 
Soho in Manhattan. It is a Ganesha temple. We're also installing some other deities. Uh, I have been practicing Hinduism for a long time now, uh, although of course I'm Jewish by birth, but Hinduism has been the way of life and the way of worshiping that has spoken to me or grabbed my heart. It is something that came sort of very naturally to me that I was pulled towards it, you know, like I was pulled towards yoga. So we had some priests uh, who had faith in what we were doing, who came in 2001 and did the deity installation for us. And we've been maintaining the temple since then. We had to close down for a few years when we lost our space. From 2015, we lost it. And then we tried to rebuild the temple in Brooklyn, but we had fits and starts. And then in 2019, we decided to close down Brooklyn because it wasn't working. And in September, our old space became available again. And I called the owner, who's an Indian gentleman named Dhruv Piplani, and said, would you be interested in the temple coming back? And he said yes. And we struck a deal and raised some money. And uh, we opened last week. So what's happening is uh, the Broom Street Temple is a temple. And there'll be worship happening in there just about every day. I'll be teaching yoga in the temple a few days a week. And so the temple's not mine. There's a temple board and the temple holds a lease. And I work for the temple as a, as a volunteer. And then I rent space from the temple to teach some yoga classes. And it's a variety of different things that I'm, that I'm teaching. So it's a beautiful space. It's very clean and open. And it has the energy that we were building in there from 15 years of yoga practice and, and chanting and prayer and meditation is like you still feel it there and it's kind of like we're just plugging back into that again so i do hope people come and visit and we have our website site broom street ganesh all of the rituals so the pujas are done on zoom on instagram live and in person so we cover all those three of those bases each time we do something and that's how the temple will operate as an in-person and virtual temple. Wonderful. So it can be worldwide. Yep, it could be. Well, I have to say, I love yoga. I go to as many classes as I can, but hearing the two of you speak, what I found really interesting is how you're changing, evolving, but you're also playing with new things. And that's what I always love about a yoga class. It's that space to explore, be calm, try new things. And I always feel there's just that openness when I go to a yoga class. So I love hearing both of you saying how things are changing, but you're looking into different ways of doing what you love and having that discipline. But I just hear so much acceptance and uh, I'm excited to hear more about it. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, it was funny because um, last, let's see, it wasn't last year, it was two years ago in, in the fall. I was invited to this conference in California and there was a gentleman there who was a Chinese face reader and Chinese medicine face reader. And he was like phenomenal. So he did a reading for me, you know, and all the readings were, were done like publicly. So he, and he knew I was there teaching yoga and he was like, so, you know, you're very brave to get up here and be exposed like this. I was like, it's fine, man. Just whatever you have to say. So um, he, he, he told me all the things about me, which were all accurate. And then he said, but, you know, what you're lacking right now, what you need is you, he said, the only way I can put it is you need to find your druids. You need to go with the <laughs> druids and learn new knowledge and explore things and be re-inspired because you're in a rut with your spiritual practices and you're not expanding anymore. And wow. I thought, you are so right. You know, I need to find these druids wherever they are. <laughs> Eddie, 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 I live in England. You are more than welcome to come visit you and Carrie. And we'll go to Stonehenge. 
Yeah, and we'll wear our, our druid outfits. I started finding them, you know, and I think, you know, a very important thing also is sometimes what happens is we think that what I'm practicing is good for everyone to do because I do something, everyone else should do it. And that's all I'm going to teach. I also want to be clear that although my practices now are something different than what I used to do, I still think Ashtanga Yoga is quite good. And obviously I still teach it a few days a week. Because even though it might not be the best thing for me right now, it's still a really good thing for other people. And because I did it for so long, I can also still teach it because I've had the experience of it. And so I'm going to continue to teach it because it's quite good. I have nothing against it. Only there were some philosophical things within the community that I thought showed a lack of evolution on all of our part. There's not to be blame put on the head of the, any of these organs. All of us had spiritual immaturity that allowed us to manifest the behaviors that we did. So that's the problem of human beings. And then there's the thing, well, there's this yoga system that's still pretty good. So, you know, how do you teach a yoga system, which is still pretty good, and not allow yourself or other people to fall into the negative patterns that we superimposed on top of something which is just some asanas, you know, that fit together nicely. So make a distinction between those things. And then you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can still say, yeah, you guys should enjoy this because this is like fucking great. You know, I'm not doing it right now, but doesn't mean that I'm not going to teach it because it's something that I devoted my life to. Uh, I also want to make that distinction in, in the conversation, just because we've moved on from practice or way of eating that we did for a long time doesn't mean that we can't still allow others to experience the joy that we experienced from those things for a very long time. Don't deny them that by saying, oh, I don't do that anymore. Yes, I love uh, how you put that. That's right on. And I also just wanted to circle back about something you said about, and I'm going to rephrase it because I can't remember the exact words that you used, but I can think about it in terms of yoga, but also in terms of what we're eating and just health in general. When we're thinking about developing healthy patterns in order to live a healthier life, in order to live a more connected life. Sometimes as humans, we may find something that works for us, right? And then decide, well, that thing works so well. You know, when I eat the apple every day at 11, it makes me feel so good. I'm going to do that. Or when I have found this Ashtanga yoga that I wake up and do every day at 5 a.m., it feels great and I'm going to do that. And then we continue to do that, continue to do that, continue to do that until we get to the point that with the apple, perhaps we need to add some blueberries in there or perhaps we need to veer away from this constant thing that we have found that works. I think that that is really key here and I think that it's so important but also sometimes really difficult for us to be that seer from the outside of the things that we're doing on a regular basis to create this stability in our lives. So that takes time. We can't really see things like this when we're in the midst of them. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning of our conversation, Eddie, about now starting to recognize when you're being pulled toward certain things like the chocolate croissant, and then you see that you're having this on a daily basis to say to yourself, wait, stop, you know, I need to pause here for a second. I mean, we could use that as a, as a tool for all of us in, in every part of our life, I think. Yeah. You know, here's one thing about there's a lot of benefit to having a very structured practice that you don't have to think about what you're going to do because you know I'm just going to get up and do it. And so, and there's also a difference between someone like, okay, my entire life is only about yoga. 
Like all I do is I practice and I teach and I read and I study and I go to school and I seek out new things and I do research and like, this is all I do, but other people, they have lives, you know, <laughs> and they, they don't care about that stuff. They just want to do some yoga, feel good and go to work. So having a very structured practice or a TM practice that they're doing 20 minutes twice a day, or the, you know, the 26 poses of, of hot yoga, that discipline in that structure allows them to not have to think about what they're going to do for their spiritual practice. They've done it. Great. I'm ready for the day. The only problem is when it, you become compulsive about it. Mm. Yes. When you think that the practice is the thing and you forget that you're the one practicing and that's what happens. So the practice becomes more important than you. The food becomes more important than you. And you forget that you're the eater. You're the practicer. Mm-hmm. You're the witness. And compulsion is the thing which covers that over. And then we get into problems. That's powerful. That's very serious for us to think about. Eddie, is there is there a saying or a little mantra or a little nugget you can give us to have in our minds when we feel ourselves getting a bit compulsive? Do you have any 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 expression or something that you think of when you to check yourself? I don't. <laughs> okay. I'm really sorry. As you've noticed, I have a hard time answering any questions in in two words. I'm really oh. bad at sound bites. I, I think the main thing is, you know, uh, develop awareness, develop awareness and the ability to catch yourself when you're doing something that you really know you want to not be doing, and then just don't do it. You know, even when I was trying to learn how to stay in handstands for long periods of time, you know, not hours, but I wanted to stay up for 25 or 30 breaths. Only thing I would say to myself is don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And you can do that with a piece of food. You can go, don't eat it. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. And then you don't. And then you've conquered a mental impression, which is making you want to eat something that you shouldn't be eating. And then if you do that enough, what happens from a yogic perspective is we have a a mental imprint, which is caused from an action. So I do something, I eat a chocolate chip cookie. That's an action. Mental impression is the memory of eating that cookie. And the associated part of the mental impression is a vasana, which is the desire to either repeat the experience or not repeat the experience if it was pleasurable or not pleasurable. So you do something pleasurable built into the memory of the experience is a desire to repeat it. And then when the opportunity presents itself, you act on the desire because you acted on it the first time. And this is called the Vritti Samskara Chakra. It's a cycle, action, imprint, desire, repeat. So when you don't act on the desire, chocolate chip cookie is there or whatever it's going to be. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. What you've done is you have short-circuited the cycle or the circle. You have not acted on your impulse. And if you don't act on your impulse enough for long enough periods, the impulse begins to weaken, begins to settle down. And now the impulse doesn't arise anymore. The subtle part of the memory of your experience will still be there. But the desire now has been what they call attenuated. It's been thinned. And so in uh, yoga, we have something called Kriya, which are the actions, the Kriya yoga. And what the Kriya yogas do is they thin or attenuate the kleshas. And the kleshas are the obstructions to us being the masters of our own minds and behavior. And they involve likes and dislikes and other things that we don't have to go into right now. But the key to them is the non-acting on an impulse as an entry-level way of changing a pattern. And then 
when you've mastered your hand reaching into the cookie jar, when you've mastered that, because that's part of your nervous system that you have control over, you know? So it's not an autonomic response. This is you like saying no. So when you master that, then you can start looking into the deeper levels of mind. And then you can really examine and uproot where do these impressions come from, if you want to. So I'd say, you know, a very simple thing for changing a pattern is either number one, don't do it, don't fall. Or number two, no matter what, my discipline that I've chosen for the time being is to be on my mat every day at 5am, 6am, 7am. I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to think about anything. The same way I'm not eating that bad thing, that same exact way I'm getting on my mat, even if it sucks. (laughs) <laughs> Even if for 15 minutes, I'm still doing it. That's a really good discipline to build in the beginning. And then it flowers into whatever it needs to. And then there's change in pattern. And then you start to know the direction you want to move in. Um, Eddie, I love that. I just want to clarify something for anyone out there that's listening, that's thinking, oh, okay, I just have to kind of curtail my impulses. We're talking specifically about impulses that maybe not have the seventh chocolate chip cookie or whatever. We're not talking about impulses to not eat. I'm not going to eat anything or I'm not going to sleep. Some of these impulses that are built into our bodies that we need in order to survive, like eat food, sleep, go to the bathroom, menstruate. Some of these things are super important. And in Ayurveda, we say that if if you stop any of those things from happening, you actually create vata. But to your point, it's interesting because you're saying that by doing these practices and by saying don't fall or don't eat that, we're actually creating change. We're creating some movement in our system, but hopefully movement in the right direction, not choosing the wrong impulse to curtail. Does that make sense? Yes, it's 100% correct, I think. And also remember that uh, when you talk about vata, vata is a characteristic of the mind. And so what we want in yoga is steadiness of the mind, mastery of the content of the mind. So the non-performance of an action, which is not a good action, is indicating that I am stabilizing the activity of my mind in doing this. I'm not doing something which is creating more chaos in my mind. I'm not doing something which is creating instability, like going without food for too long or, or, or going without sleep for too long or exercise or anything like that. I'm doing something for the purpose of, of steadying the mind, of steadying my vata. That's the purpose of that action. Got it. That's very clear. You're very wonderful at explaining things in a very simple way. Is that the reason that you named your book One Simple Thing? Because you just were able to see that it's just this one simple thing you have to do in order to create this wonderful life? I just called it One Simple Thing because I was writing about yoga. And I think that yoga is this one basic simple thing that like no matter what kind of yoga you're doing, it helps people. Yes, it does help people, doesn't it, Eddie? Uh, Well, it certainly helped me, I should say. And to your point, practicing yoga for so long definitely quieted my mind, and it was instrumental in leading me down the path of studying Ayurveda, which is why I'm here today. Thank you for all the wonderful insight today, Eddie. And just before we go, can you just one more time tell everyone how they can find you, information that they can find you or your books or any of the other great things that you've created? My website is eddiestern.com, E-D-D-I-E-S-T-E-R-N.com. My online and in-person classes and all of my apps and books and everything are all on the website. And then the Broom Street Temple is broomstreetganesh.org. And the puja schedule is up there. And all of our merchandise for the temple, which helps to raise funds 
temple is runs on donations is there. So they're cool t-shirts and sweatshirts and bags and stuff that we make for the temple. So that's all there. And the only social media I use is Instagram and that's at Eddie Stern. And I'm not very prolific on it. I would disagree on that. <laughs> I try. I try but and I, I do want to just say that you have given some wonderful pointers on doing yoga uh, with COVID or after COVID, recovering from COVID for anyone that wants to check that out, because I think it's really useful for a lot of people out there on Instagram. Yeah, those yoga with COVID videos were while I was having, I was home, I was in my quarantine, but I needed to start moving. So it's exactly what I was doing for myself to get myself moving again with very gentle practices. I loved it. I haven't had COVID, um, but I think it's really helpful. So thank you for that. Why not to get it? It's not super fun. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. Thank you so much, Addie. It was wonderful to see you. Just a reminder that none of the advice that we've given today on this Brains and Bellies podcast is meant to diagnose or treat any health problem. So please do seek the advice of your doctor for any specific health issue and join us here next time for Brains and Bellies.